somebody say that I look like a Mormon evangelist. <laughs> I can't convince Pastor Bruce to uh, put on a tie. He said he will only put on a tie if I come with shorts. <laughs> so we decided to... Uh, Well, this morning, I just want to, I know we all have uh, lunch to attend. We have uh, turkey in the oven, maybe on timer, uh, and the weather is getting hot. But just with the little time that I have with you, I want to share with you some thoughts on Jesus. What child is this? Who really is Jesus? Because Christmas is really about Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? And of all the questions that might be posed in modern men and women, I think none is more important than this. Who is he? Here are some contemporary answers to the question, who is Jesus Christ? A good man, the son of God, a prophet, a Galilean rabbi, a teacher of God's law, the embodiment of God's love, a reincarnated spirit master, the ultimate revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, Savior, a first century wise man, a man just like any other man, King of Kings, a misunderstood teacher, Lord of the universe, a deluded religious leader, son of man, a fabrication of the early church, and on and on and on. Someone said that the Jews tried to keep Christ contained within their Lord, law, while the Greeks sought to turn him into a philosophy. The Romans made of him an empire, the Europeans reduced him to a culture, and the Americans have made a business of him. Uh, but who is Jesus? H.G. Wells say, I am an historian. I am not a Christian. But I must confess that as a historian, that, he, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And someone else says, Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50 years, Aristotle for 40 years, but Jesus only three years. And yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from this man who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, said, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone like him. It has been said that Elvis Presley, before he died, he was reading a book called The Many Faces of Jesus. And the title stands as a fitting symbol of the confusion surrounding Jesus in our times. And 2,000 years have passed and still we wonder about the man 
called Jesus. And so today, what I want to do is just look into the scripture, not really into it, but look into the Apostle Creed and give you four points in the Bible what this child is like. Who is Jesus? The Apostle Creed says this about Jesus. Four things here that says about Jesus. I want to bring it to you. The Apostle Creed said, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Out of the 110 words in the Apostle Creed that many churches ascribe to because of the time of heresy in the early century, the early church father come together and say, let's look at what the, we believe about Jesus and put it all together in the creed. And of all the 110 words in the creed, the Apostle Creed, 70 of those words occur in the section relating to Jesus Christ. 70 words out of 110 words in the Apostle Creed tells us about Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is all about Jesus. He is the heart and core, the touchstone of all that we believe. You can be mistaken on some secondary issues and still be a Christian. But if you are wrong about Jesus, you are probably wrong in the worst possible place. Our faith in Jesus must be more than just an emotional experience of having Jesus in our heart. Our faith must rest on the revealed truth about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. So let me just, uh, in those words, give you four points in that creed in explaining to you who Jesus is. What child is this? Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. The first thing is, Jesus is the Savior. The word Jesus means Savior. It's a very common name, uh, but it means God saves. Scholars tell us that it was actually a very common name among the Jews in the first century. There were at least about 10 other named Jesus who lived in Judea at the time of our Lord. There were at least five Jewish high priests who were, who were named Jesus. Jesus the Hebrew form of Jesus is called Joshua. So if your name is Joshua, you are actually Jesus. Uh, it speaks of the fact that God has entered the human race on a rescue mission from heaven. And that is why the angel said to Joseph this. He said this to Joseph. He said, she, meaning Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. You have to name this baby Jesus because He is the Savior. He is here to save people from their sins. And 1 Peter 3.8 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. Because the heart of the problem in this world is the problem of the heart. It is not about external. It's the heart is the issue. And therefore, if the heart is the issue. We can't change ourselves. We need a Savior to come and save us. C.S. Lewis said, No clever arrangement of bad eggs ever made a good omelette. You can change on the external, 
but you can't. The hard part is the difficult part, the heart, because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and you need redemption. There's a story uh, by Max Lucado. When in the early days of my Christian life, I loved to read his book, and he wrote a book called A Gentle Thunder. And this is what he says about this story that bring up this point. He said, two sons of the king brought their father a question. He said, is the gentleman born or made? What do you think? He replied, I think a gentleman is born a gentleman, replied one son. I disagreed, replied the other son. A man becomes gentleman by training and discipline. So the king looked at his sons and issued a challenge to both of them. He said, prove your case by presenting me an example. I give you, each of you, one week to return with proof of your opinions, whether you say a gentleman is born or a gentleman is made. And so the two sons departed at different directions. The son who believed a gentleman was made, not found, found his proof in a restaurant. He ordered a cup of tea and was amazed when he saw that the waiter was a cat. This cat had been trained to stand on his hinged legs and carry the tray in his four paws. He wore a tiny uniform and hat and was proved that a creature could overcome his nature with training and discipline. The first son had his example. If a cat can be changed, couldn't a man? So the prince purchased the animal and took him to the court. The other son was not so fortunate. He searched the kingdom but was unable to find any support for his theory. He returned home empty-handed. What's worse, Wood had leaked about his brother's discovery. News of the walking cat made him doubt his convictions. But then just hours before the two were to appear in the king, to the king, he saw something in the store window and made him smile. He made the purchase but told no one. And the two sons entered the court of the king. Each one carried a box. The first son announced that he could prove that a man could overcome any obstacle and become a gentleman. As the king watched, the son presented a cat dressed in miniature court dress who gave the king a tray of chocolates. The king was stunned. His son was proud and the court broke into applause. What excellent proof. Who could then the evidence of the walking cat? Everyone pitied the second son, but he was not discouraged. With a bow to the king, he opened the box he had brought, releasing several mice into the court. Instantly, the cat scrambled after the mice. The cat's true nature had been revealed and the point had been made. A walking cat is still a cat. You can change his clothes, you can teach him tricks, you can give him a hat and train him to walk. And for a while, he will appear to be changed, but present him with the one thing he can't resist, and you'll be faced with an undeniable truth. A walking cat is still a cat. And the same is true with people. We can change our clothes, we can change our habits, we can change our vocabulary, we can change our reading level, even our attitude. But according to the scripture, there is one thing we cannot change, and that is our sinful state. And that is why Jesus is our Savior, is to redeem us from our sinful state, to bring us to God. We are saved not because of our works. We are no better as Christians, we are no better than any other people. We are no superior than any other people. We are only saved by grace. 
And that's the gospel that we have, that we are saved by grace. And therefore, Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Changing the clothes doesn't change the man. Outward discipline doesn't alter what is within. New habits don't make a new soul. That's not to say that outward change is not good. It is only to say that outward change is not enough. If one would see the kingdom, he must be born again. That's why Jesus is our Savior. And Max Lucado went on to say this. He said, when you recognize God as your creator, you will admire Him. When you recognize His wisdom, you will want to learn from Him. When you discover His strength, you will rely on Him. But when He saves you, you will worship Him. When you know that He saves you, you will worship Him. You will bow down and give your life and will worship Him. So the first thing about Jesus is that He is our Savior to save us. Secondly, according to the Apostle Creed, He is the Christ. He is the Christ. Jesus Christ, Christ is not His surname. He is not from the Christ family. He is not Mr. Christ. Christ is the title. Like Caesar is a title. Like Sir is a title. Or Malaysia, Dato or Tansuri is a title. Christ is a title. Christ, simply Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ comes from a Greek word that itself comes from a Hebrew word which simply means the anointed one. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. And we often translate it as the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Do you know in the Old Testament, you must understand Jesus comes from a Jewish culture. In the Old Testament, there are three officers that need anointing. There are three officers. We don't, I mean, you know, you are knighted as a king, they knighted on your shoulder, you know. But in the, in the Old Testament time, there are three officers that need anointing. The first, let me just show you the verses first. Right? And I'll try the three officers that need anointing and how Christ fulfilled this and all the three functions. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, which is the Christ, the anointed one. And then in John chapter 1, the first thing Andrew did, the apostle Andrew did, was to find his brother because he met Christ and then he went and told his, told his brother, he says, and then he, he found his brother Simon and then he tell him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. We have found the anointed one. Because Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ. Simon Peter, when he was asked, many people say many things about Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon Peter and said, Peter, tell me, who do you think I am? Never mind what the rest say. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the Son of the living God. There are three officers that need anointing in the Old Testament. And the first one is prophet. Prophet need anointing. Prophet's function is to bring God to man. He spoke on behalf of God. God speaks to prophet and prophet come and declare. So he brings God to people. And then the second function that need anointing is priest. And the function of the priest is to bring people to God. That is why once a year, the high priest will enter the temple. The holy of holies, only once a year, the high priest can enter. No other people can enter 
the Holy of Holies, where you see the Ark of the Covenant there and, and present sacrifices to God. So a priest's function is to bring people to God. He's representing God. The prophet function is to bring God to people. And then the third function, third office that requires anointing is the king. The king brings direction to people. And so these three functions, the prophet, priest, and king. Prophet bring God to people, priest bring people to God, and the king rule over them and give them direction. Those three officers in the Old Testament need anointed. And when Christ came, the Jewish people said, this is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, that submit all of these three functions into one, that is bring people to God, bring God to people, and give direction to people. And so Jesus Christ, His name Jesus Savior, Christ means the Messiah, the anointed one. He came here to redeem and to save us from our sin. The third thing that we need to talk about Jesus is that He is God's only Son. So He is the Savior, He is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And the third thing the Scripture tells us, summarizing in the Apostle Creed, He is God's only Son. The phrase, now it creates a lot of confusion. And Muslim people cannot accept that God has a son. How does God have a son? You know? uh, let me just clarify this way. This phrase speaks of his relation to, to God the Father. The little word only tells us something crucial about our Lord. If you read the old King James Version, uh, John 3.16 will say what? Only what? What son? Only begotten son, isn't it? What does the phrase only begotten mean? It comes from the Greek word, simply means monogenous. Monogenous. The mono part means one and only, right? As in monologue or monotheism, one. And the word gene comes from gender or genetics. And so when you put monogenous together, it seems. You only say only begotten means one and only absolutely unique one one of a kind and there can never be another of the same kind only begotten one and only unique one there never will be another one the term stresses the absolutely unique nature of Jesus Christ because God now is coming to us. He's going to appear to humanity, make our eyes and see, our flesh can feel. And now God is going to descend and come in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. Jesus is the personification of who God is. Jesus is the face of God. When you see Jesus, you know what God is like. God is not some sort of a spirit living there. You cannot know His character. So when you want to know God, you read the gospel. Who is God? Who is Jesus? When you know what Jesus is, that is God. Hebrews chapter 1 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, the word last days in the Bible always referring to the time after Jesus appeared. 
It's not referring to as in the final few days before the world finished. The, the word last day is always referring to after Jesus appeared because no one else after that, that God will... Uh, another way of dealing with God. So, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by who? His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful words. So God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, born. And that is why on Christmas Day, we remember the descending part of God to, in the person of Christ. The word Son creates some confusion. In Jewish thought, Son often bears the meaning of partaker of the character. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning He is the partaker of the character of God. When we say that He is the Son of Man, we are saying that He is partaker of the character of a man. So that's the word of means Son of. So if someone pardon me for using this word, if someone said that you're son of a dog, he's not referring that your father is a dog. You are partaking like a character of a dog. You're behaving like someone that is badly. So son of, meaning you're partaking the character. Whereas child of denote your position. Son of denote the character of. And so when we say that Jesus is God's only son, Jesus is partaking the character of God, the exact representation of His being. As D. Gordon says, Jesus is God spelling Himself out in language that man can understand. Jesus is God spelling Himself out in language that man can understand. C.S. Lewis says this, C.S. Lewis say, I am trying very hard to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say, he said. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who say he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What C.S. Lewis basically is saying is that if Jesus is not God, he cannot be a good moral teacher because a good moral teacher will not say those things he said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the rest. A good moral teacher will not say something that is not true. That's why he says he's either he's a lunatic or he is liar or he is Lord. Then you've got to pick the choice. So here, uh, 
on Christmas Day, the three things I just mentioned, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus is God's only Son, God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The fourth thing that the Apostle Creek tells us about Jesus that I want to conclude is He is our Lord. He is our Lord. The final title given to Jesus relates to you and me. He is our Lord. The basic meaning of the word Lord means absolute ruler. Absolute ruler. To call Jesus as Lord means that He is sovereign over the entire universe and He has the right of sovereign rule over you and me our lives. He is our Lord. Look at Romans chapter 10. Say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess with the mouth means more than simply saying the words that Jesus is Lord. It means to agree from the heart that you believe what you are saying. And that is, you must know, in the early culture when the Jewish people were ruled under the Roman Empire, the, Roman, the Rome conquered many places. They ruled over many nations. And they often allowed each nation that they ruled over to have their own belief system. They can worship their God. It's not an issue for them. Uh, because the empire stretched from Europe into the Middle East and across the northern coast of Africa, it encompassed many provinces and thus included many local religions. And scholars speak of the mystery religions that were found in many parts of the empire. And each of the various religions has its own code of conduct, its own sacred scripture, its own pattern of worship, a different form of sacrifice, sacred rites, priesthood, and so on. It is not a problem for them at all. Because religion, religion tends to be keep people pacified and the Romans let them alone as far as possible. But Rome only required two things. They require you to pay taxes to them. And secondly, they require you to say, Caesar is Lord. They require you to salute and say, Caesar is my Lord. And therefore, the Romans persecute Christians not because they believe Jesus is God. They persecuted Christians because Christians will only pledge their allegiance to Jesus and not Caesar. And that is where the persecution comes in. Rome did not persecute Christians because they believed in the deity of Christ, that Jesus was a promised Messiah, or that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Rome did not kill Christians because they said Jesus is the only way of salvation. They don't. Those were religious beliefs and that did not threaten them at all. But when Christians declared Jesus Christ is our Lord and there is no other, that was a direct attack on Caesar worship and thus punishable by death. And that is why the Lordship of Christ matters so much. To call Jesus Lord means that we surrender our lives to Him and we follow Him gladly wherever it leads and wherever it costs. Look at Luke chapter 6. Jesus says this to his disciples. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do 
what I say because when you call Jesus Lord it implies that your life belongs to him someone wrote this poem say you call me the way and you walk me not you call me the life and you leave me not you call me master and you obey me not you if I condemn thee blame me not you call me bread and you eat me not you call me the truth and you believe me not you call me Lord and you serve me not but if I condemn thee blame me not so Jesus is our saviour Jesus is our messiah Jesus is God's only son the personification of God himself in the person of Jesus and Jesus is the Lord someone wrote this poem called three dollars worth of God it says this I would like to buy three dollars worth of God please not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick bits with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warm of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to just buy $3 worth of God, please. But there's no room for that as believers because Jesus is our Lord. And He owns us. So Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. Jesus is God's only Son, partaking of God's character, coming down to earth to put picture, to put flesh into what God is like to humanity. And then when we bow and worship Him, we call Him our Lord, when we surrender our lives to Him. There's a very interesting story that I came across a number of years ago about a man named Jack. Jack was moosing about his life. His marriage was in trouble. He was not getting on well with his kids. And he was unsure of what he was doing with his future. And so as he was strolling along, a shiny object glinted in the sunshine and caught his eye. Going over for a closer look, he discovered an old bottle washed up on the shore and picking it up he noticed that the cap was still on and there appeared to be a note inside of that bottle so he his curiosity was aroused so he smashed the bottle on a large pebble and he took out the note interestingly no genie appeared uh, he, he broke the, the bottle and took the note out to examine what the note said and this was what written in the note I, Daisy Alexander, do hereby will my entire estate to the lucky person who finds this note and to my attorney, Mr. B. Gowin, June 30th, 1936. What would you do if you found a note like that? Strategy? Somebody play a prank? Well, obviously, his first thought was that it was the work of a creative prankster. And he was about to throw the note away, but caught in two minds. He folded it and said, what if it is really true? You know? What if it is really true? So he decided to keep it, the note in his pocket. And not long after this incident, he bumped into a friend of his who happened to be a, a lawyer. And Jack uh, told him about the message in the bottle and asked him what he thought. And the attorney told Jack he, would, he should investigate it. 
And Jack thought maybe it's such a foolish thing, you know, to, to investigate such kind of note. But, but Jack protested and the idea was stupid and that he would only be made to look like a fool investigating, investigating such a ridiculous note. However, his friend encouraged him to find out whether or not it was true. You will be a bigger fool, he said, if you don't check it out and it is true. As they often say, isn't it? There's nothing to lose by trying, right? So to make the long story short, Jack Wum, a true person, did investigate the note. The process took him to the highest courts in the United States of America. The evidence showed conclusively that Daisy Alexander had existed, that her home had been in London, and that she was the heiress to the singer. You know the singer sewing machine that most households have? In the early days of time in Singapore, Malaysia, there's a wedding gift that people give to a couple. Daisy Alexander was the heiress to the singer sewing machine fortune. She had left a separate will, and in it, she stated that whoever found the piece of paper could have half her money. Well, it turned out that she was a highly eccentric lady. One morning, she had written the note, placed it in a bottle, and thrown it into the River Thames. And one of the experts caught to give evidence was a mathematician. He calculated that a, that a bottle thrown into the Thames would do the following. From the Thames River, it would enter the North Sea, and then it would flow eventually into the Bering Sea and on into the Pacific. He worked out that in the unlikely event of the bottle surviving such an incredible journey, it would take 12 years for the bottle to get from Thames to California. It actually took 11 and a half years. And so Jack inherited, you know how much? Three and a half million US dollars. And this, this incredible story of Jack and the will in the border would never have been told if he had thrown away the message. All that inheritance would have been lost if his friend had not cajoled him into investigating the message to test its truth. Jack would have remained a relatively poor man Instead, because he examined the whole matter, what had first appeared foolish proved to be a remarkable reality. Even a message that at first seems hard to believe or understand can bring a great reward. And the Christian message revealed in the Bible is of far greater significance than Jack's message in a bottle and promises much more than money. Investigating and examining it it is potentially far more rewarding. In the story, we have just read a careful examination of the message was followed by assessment of the evidence and the truth was determined and the reward followed. So exactly the same thing is required when you encounter the Word of God. May, uh, may you take heart in the Christian message. When you come to Christmas, remember this message that Jesus is the Savior to save you from your sin he is the Messiah, the Anointed One, bringing people to God, bringing God to people and bringing direction. And He is God's begotten Son, God coming in the person of Christ. And when we bow and give our hearts to Him, He became our Lord. And we then followed His guidance and lived this life meaningfully and cheerfully and joyfully. Let me close with this. I want to, I want to sing you a song. 
I've been rehearsing in my morning walk. I'll sing you a Christmas song that I learned when I was 17 years old. Simple, short chorus. And then I'll close. Merry Christmas to you. May your dreams for the new year come true. And may the tiny bit of Bethlehem be born again in you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Let's pray. Father, our Christmas can be merry and I pray uh, sincerely this morning, may the tiny babe of Bethlehem be born again in us because He is the Savior. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is God begotten, one and only monogenous, absolutely unique one that came. They will never repeat again. And He is our Lord. May we have space in our heart to allow you to enter this morning and acknowledge you as Savior, as the Messiah, as God coming to us, and as our Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that our sins can be forgiven when we come to you. We are sincerely, Lord, we have mucked up, we have screwed up, we have made many mistakes in our lives, but we thank you for Jesus that he always gives us a clean start. Thank you that we are saved by grace, not by works. As believers, we are no better than any other people. We are only saved by grace. So we come to you, bow before you, and say thank you for coming to us. And as we sing this closing song, we are reminded again who Jesus is. His name above every name. Beautiful Savior. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. May we bow and worship you. Amen. Would you stand as we close this time of service with this simple chorus? Jesus' name above all names. Glory!
Jesus humbled himself, he went from commanding angels to sleeping in the straw, from holding stars to clutching Mary's finger. The palm that held the universe took the nail of a soldier. And why? Because that's what love is. Thank you for coming to us, dear Jesus. Thank you for your love for each one of us. Why we can never understand. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sacrificing your life for us. Thank you for bridging and bringing us to God. We bless you, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this Christmas. May we find our hearts for you. May we find our hearts for people that we may be Jesus to them this Christmas. May the Lord lead us where we go, when we go, and may the Lord keep us when we sleep. And may the Lord talk with us when we wake. And may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.